everyone. Welcome to The Green Room, where we speak to entrepreneurs and thought leaders in fintech across ASEAN. I'm your host, Amrita Veer. We are sponsored by the ASEAN Financial Innovation Network, or AFIN, Oxygen by Apex, and Open Banking Fintech Broncos. In this episode, I speak with Aaron Collette, Senior Credit Manager at Goldfinch, a decentralized credit protocol that connects investors and fintechs in emerging markets to provide stablecoin-based credit. Aaron grew up in Indonesia, but has worked all over the world, including Singapore, Hong Kong, London, and New York, on various areas of structured financing. Aaron led Asia origination at Lendable until last October, and then he made the jump to Web3 by joining Goldfinch in New York. Goldfinch is a marketplace that connects crypto stablecoin holders with emerging market fintechs that typically seek debt to fund their balance sheets in the real economy. Goldfinch was founded in July of 2021 and raised $25 million from A16Z's crypto arm earlier this year in January. And in case you were wondering, all of Goldfinch's loans are denominated in USDC, so they have been relatively shielded from all of the Terra Luna drama. You can learn more about them by visiting goldfinch.finance. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello everyone, my name is Manish Devan. I am the Managing Director for AFIN, which is ASEAN Financial Innovation Network. We run the very popular apixplatform.com, which is a collaboration platform to help financial institutions work together with a very vibrant ecosystem of fintechs from across the world. We now operate what we call as Oxygen by Apex, which is essentially a knowledge sharing platform and we are very happy to collaborate with the green room it's a great combination of what we do as a platform service provider and what the green room brings to you as a a knowledge sharing base you can find out more about apex on apexplatform.com and you can find out more about oxygen by logging into apexoxygen.com where you'll find a lot of great panels, keynotes, uh, masterclasses that we do from time to time and uh, look forward to seeing you there. Aaron, welcome to the green room. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So Aaron, I want to start with learning a little bit more about you and going back in time a bit. Uh, You grew up in Jakarta and decided to pursue your university studies in the US. Uh, You attended Emory University in Atlanta. Can you tell us a little bit about growing up in Indonesia and then why you decided to go to the U.S. to study? Yeah, sure. So I was actually born in Indonesia. I spent 18 years there as a kid. My middle name is actually Indonesian. It's Harawan. And I'm originally a New Zealander, although the American accent doesn't give that away, which is too bad. But yeah, I grew up there my whole childhood. It was like obviously a very interesting time to be in Indonesia. Like I think the Jakarta that I was born into versus Jakarta now are two entirely different cities. Although the subway was promised to be constructed the year I was born and then got finished like two years ago. So some things don't change. So, I mean, it was a really interesting time to grow up in Indonesia because I think kind of halfway through my time there is when the government changed and there was the Asian financial crisis. I mean, back in the day, I had really no idea about hyperinflation and bank credit runs and any of that kind of thing. But seeing the like real world impact that those kind of events have on geopolitics, you know, societies and things like that, and seeing kind of the nation grow two step forward, one step back in kind of its democratic path 
has been really interesting as a kid. And I think it's always made me very like impact oriented or wanting to get back into that emerging market space. Things just feel like a lot more alive there. And I think from a more macroeconomic perspective, that just means there's more growth opportunities. There's a lot more people who have things that need to be done in their lives to, to get them into a financially inclusive space. And so I didn't actually end, want to end up or didn't mean to end up in finance, but kind of did. And so we gravitated towards the impact space once I, once I got there. In terms of going to the US, like I feel like as a kid, there was such a kind of small international community in Jakarta that everyone just had the expectation of going overseas. My brother went to college in the States and kind of paved the path for me. So for me, it was kind of a logical choice. But yeah, I mean, and I think it it kind of kicked, kicked off my career in a good way as well. So I was pretty happy about that decision. Yeah. Plus, yeah. Atlanta is like one of the more warm places you can go in America while I adjusted to not being in the tropics anymore. Yeah, I understand. I grew up in Texas. And so moving to Singapore felt, you know, at least the same climate and makes it feel more like home. That's great, Aaron. I think it must have been, yeah, really fascinating and impactful growing up and seeing the Asian financial crisis right in front of your face. Do you feel like you had any tangible examples of, you know, challenges that people face, like in like a circle close to you? Yeah. I mean, maybe not related, somewhat related to the Asian financial crisis, but a personal example. I mean, we have a lot of, my family has a lot of connections to Bali. And, and when we were kids, my parents were building a hotel in a small kind of in the mountains of Bali. And that's when the Asian financial crisis hit. And, you know, that just seeing kind of the impact that had on tourism. And then there was just a whole slew of shocks that hit Bali. And I think the, the bigger ones were kind of like the Bali bombings. And then a few years ago, there was a volcano that erupted and things like that. And for me, it was like a really clear example of kind of the financial shocks that people face, especially when you're in an island that depends so much on external demand. And so through all of those different cycles, you're able or through all those different shocks, you're kind of able to see that a lot of people don't have the, you know, the privilege of being able to financially plan. And there's a lot of strains that people find when these shocks come. And so thinking about because I think other people in these situations don't really even conceptualize the idea of being able to get credit to, you know, cover big costs or deal with emergencies. And so Seeing that firsthand for me just kind of hit home how financially excluded, you know, a lot of people in Indonesia are. And like it was a, just a totally different situation back when we were kids. So seeing kind of the, the growth of fintech in the region is, is pretty exciting because I think that a lot of the communities that are kind of outside the hubs of Indonesia that you've seen really are able to access digital financial services through smartphones now. Whereas, you know, when I was a kid, you would go to random parts of Indonesia and they'd never seen a white person before. It's it's a new world out there. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about like the present day fintech ecosystem a little bit later, but it's incredible. It's obviously shocking to kind of experience those things, especially when you're young. But it does sound like it, they were like really formative experiences that you know lead you to where you are today. So let's keep going with that journey. You know, you you said you studied in the U.S but you know, went into finance. So I think you went into Goldman, Goldman Sachs after school, working in London, and then I think Hong Kong. And I guess in Hong Kong, you're focused on credit ratings for various Asian government bodies and financial institutions. I find that really fascinating. Can you, one, tell us like, you know, why you decided to move back to Asia and about this type of work? And did that at all influence your decision to go back to grad school? 
Yeah, it was super fascinating. I kind of accidentally ended up in finance and I just loved that job at Goldman. It was incredibly interesting and also kind of lined up really well with macroeconomic events or maybe not well. But when I started in London was just when the euro crisis was happening. And I was primarily a sovereign analyst as well as a little bit of FI. So I was the analyst on Greece and Portugal and Italy and the Greek banks and things like that at the time when it looked like the euro was going to collapse. And so super interesting time to be in that seat. So in London, I was doing more of the kind of sovereign analysis and rating type of things. And then when I moved to Hong Kong, a bigger part of our business was advising governments who wanted to get better credit ratings. And so while we were there, we advised HKMA, the Central Bank of Hong Kong, the Philippines, South Korea, and a couple others. I think the Philippines was probably the most interesting for me. Like when I got to Hong Kong, they were super focused on their credit rating and getting to investment grade for the first time in their history. And fortunately, that happened while we were advising them. I just think there's a lot of these emerging market countries that have a lot of strengths, but you really have to dig in to talk about exactly how robust their macroeconomic scenarios are and things like that. But from like, I just remember the first time I got to Hong Kong, my first weekend, I had to fly over to the Philippines. And because we were at this conference that was this bi-yearly economic conference, and the theme was achieving investment grade. And so my very first meeting in Hong Kong was breakfast with the whole cabinet of the Philippines. And they're all just like looking at me and my colleagues being like, Hey, so what do we do about this stuff? Like it was, it was really fascinating. Yeah. That work was really cool. And I think also we happened to be working with countries that were really making a positive impact growing near and dear to my heart because they have the Southeast Asian background as well. And my brother actually lived in the Philippines at the time. So that was also a cool, cool added bonus, but yeah, that was a really interesting experience. And so like that was kind of the start of my career and got me interested in kind of the credit space, but it was more of an internal risk management role. And I was curious about the buy side. And so I decided to go back to grad school and kind of make that pivot. The move to Asia within Goldman was actually just coincidental. Like I thought I was going to start buying furniture and everything in London. And the next day my boss says, Hey, there's an opening in Hong Kong. You want to go check it out? And I think it was amazing. I love Hong Kong. What a great city. But really glad I did that before going back to grad school because that kind of reminded me of my Asian roots as well as like, I think people just need to choose the regions where they're going to be the most value add. There's like a ton of good you can do in Southeast Asia where there's a little bit of a lack of human capital, especially in the startup and financial sectors. And so thinking about myself being just like another Wharton MBA in New York versus being someone who has those skills in Indonesia is like a totally different value proposition. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then it sounds like that definitely did influence your decision to not just do an MBA, but also a master's of public administration and MPA, where we overlapped, but did not actually meet each other. <laughs> Tell me a little about, a bit about that. And it sounds like you did, you know, come, getting in touch with those Asian roots actually brought you back to Southeast Asia, to Singapore after school. Yeah, I got really lucky with my internships when I was in grad school. My first summer, I interned at Axion Venture Labs, which is like a, you know, leading impact investor in the fintech space. Uh, and I think that really opened my eyes to the thought leaders in the space and kind of the cool things that were happening. Actually, when I was interning there back in 2015, I was doing a presentation on the blockchain and cryptocurrency. So that's kind of come full circle, which is interesting. But then on that theme of kind of like doubling down on where you add the most value, my second summer, I came back to Jakarta 
interned at BCG as well as a local private equity fund. And after that, I was basically convinced I wanted to be back in the region. Being in New York after grad school was more just like a temporary stop within the organization that I was in, which is a private equity firm uh, in the infrastructure space that then had the intention of sending me to Singapore, which is how I found my way back eventually. Got it. Got it. It sounds like a great, great way to come back. A great kind of getting back in touch with your roots. So, okay. You came back to Southeast Asia. You worked at EQT. You worked at Lendable. And I think Lendable in particular seems to have like a financial inclusion mission. And then, you know, then going to Goldfinch also seems to have a similar mission, but delivered via stablecoin. Tell us a little bit about, I think, EQT Lendable and how that model is similar and different to to what you're now doing at Goldfinch. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we should probably carve EQT out of the conversation because that's infrastructure private equity, totally different than most of my normal credit background. But in my opinion, like we kind of live in an age now where you can move between jobs relatively easily. And from my perspective, being in finance, one of the biggest like impact alphas you can have is finding the place in the financial system that is underserved. Like I moved to Singapore with EQT thinking, this is like an awesome opportunity to do large ticket infrastructure private equity deals. And after a little while, I was, <clears throat> I kind of got feeling that there's only so many large ticket private equity deals you can do in Southeast Asia. And there's so much competition from firms trying to move into Southeast Asia that like, even though you're doing really intense, good, interesting work, it doesn't feel like if you weren't there, it wouldn't happen. And so that was part of my motivation of going into the fintech space where it felt like the demand for capital was so much greater than the provision of capital. And that's specifically why I entered the debt space as well. I mean, Southeast Asia equity markets VC are incredibly hot, but there's still a massive need for international capital in order to help these, these businesses scale. So yeah, I mean, Lendable was kind of a return to my debt roots. I opened up their Asia office. They were a Africa-only company until then and had been since 2015. And so it was super interesting. I mean, Asia is a whole different world that's multiples bigger than that market. And I was out there covering it myself. And so it felt like there was just so many cool opportunities. Loved interacting with like local Indonesian fintechs, local Philippines fintechs, did some really interesting, cool deals while I was there. And so that kind of really motivated me to double down on this fintech investing angle, especially sorry, through the sorry, debt capital Aaron, markets. Aaron, wanted to just, just make sure the audience knows Lendable actually provides like debt financing to other fintechs that are then going to lend that capital out, right? Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, they do like large ticket US dollar loans for companies that are looking to scale because eventually local capital markets get tapped out. If you're a business that is primarily focused on lending, you need to be able to use that lending capital. I mean, you can burn some equity capital for a while, but from like a finance theory perspective, it's not a great idea. So yeah, Lendable, when I was there, we did kind of like 5 to $10 million loans to fintech startups throughout Southeast Asia. That would be term loans. And then they are basically in charge of managing the capital. So it's not like the capital aligned directly to the tenor of loans. They could recycle it until the term was up. And yeah, it basically gives them that scalability. I think it's it's pretty intense to set up private debt deals, but it felt like this was like an important step for a lot of these fintechs to really enter these markets. And so part of my job was exciting because you could execute the deals, but it was also like educating the teams, helping them understand how debt markets work getting into the nitty gritty of security documents and all that kind of stuff. So 
I would say it was an awesome time at Lendable, really a good way to get deep into the weeds in understanding how these deals get done. And then Goldfinch was basically similar kind of model, but moving into the crypto space where the LPs are crypto stablecoin holders. And for me, I think if you look at impact investing or debt impact investing, like it's still a relatively nascent field. And in order to get LPs on board, especially with an impact angle, there's so many different stages you have to go through in order to get people comfortable with that capital. And so thinking about, you know, taking many years to raise a hundred million dollar fund versus seeing these Goldfinch deals close in, you know, two hours was pretty exciting. And like, there's an example of that from just this morning, right? Like we raised the fund for LendEast, um, which is a, another kind of like competitor fund for Lendable in Southeast Asia, who I'd been working with when I started at Lendable. And we opened up our capital round for a $10 million deal this morning at 11 a.m. And it was done before 1 p.m. So within two hours, this credit fund that would usually take years, months, whatever to raise capital had found people on the blockchain that were like, yes, I want to invest in this. And now because you know crypto is relatively easy, they'll be able to draw down that capital in the next few days and put it to work. Wow. That's... And that's incredible. One, congratulations on the Lendy's deal. That is amazing. I think you've also just eliminated the investor relations role at a lot of these funds. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's incredible. In two hours, you know, to raise think, a bunch of ties. Yeah. I mean, I can't name names, but I was talking to a startup last week and they were like, if we can do this, because we haven't executed a deal with them yet, but like if this first deal goes well, like I won't go meet any other debt capital providers because you just made my job so simple. It's like press button, get money. Obviously, it's more complicated than that, but it is a lot more simplified. I think one of the things I also felt in finance, especially in kind of like traditional finance, like Goldman and EQT in particular, I feel like you end up doing a lot of work that like as a junior person, you're like, is this really adding value? Like, am I really fundamentally changing what's happening in this process? But you still have to do it, right? And so things can end up getting very complex and deal execution and all that stuff. Whereas what's cool in crypto is that like the first thing that you're required to ask is like, do I need to do this? The whole point is to decentralize everything and cut out intermediating actors. And so coming at a problem with like, the ability to say, yeah, I did always think that, you know, reading through this one particular legal doc over and over a million times was really not a good use of my time it means you can implement that immediately. But on your point about kind of like disintermediating actors or like, you know, having roles disappear and things like that, I think there's people like over dramatize how quickly some of these changes happen, right? Like, there's a very complex debt supply chain and a lot of the more like crypto enthusiastic people about Goldfinch are just like, yeah, the value add is just cut everybody out in the middle and just have a borrower and a lender get on a platform and do it, which is like a great idea. But there's still a ton of stuff in that supply chain that is not inefficient and that is adding protections. And so I've always come at the space in the sense that there's always more room for collaboration with traditional finance than there is for competition. And a really good example of that is that, you know, the first few deals that we're focusing on at Goldfinch are with credit funds that lend to fintechs. And obviously that's another intermediary in between us and the fintechs. But while our crypto community is getting up to speed about how to underwrite deals, how to structure them, I think leveraging those relationships 
with credit funds that are always looking for LPs and being an LP to them rather than a direct investor into their fintechs is also a value-added service. And for every role that's disintermediated, there will be a new role that comes up. Right? That's that's what people say about automation is that you know it's kind of a false statement to say that it destroys jobs because it might create new ones. And that's how I, I feel in crypto. Like even as I think about how to cut out some of these intermediaries that extract costs and rents from the process, you also realize ways that the same intermediaries could change their service or be able to add value in a way that you as a decentralized blockchain can't interact with the real world. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess to that point, Aaron, let's actually dig into the stakeholders that are involved in in Goldfinch. I mean, I think the concept of, okay, you've got, it's a platform connecting basically investors and then fintechs that need access to capital. It's actually quite similar to what you were doing. It's like the Web3 version of what you were doing at Lendable. So that concept is clear, but I think the way that the stakeholders are organized is quite unique. So can we talk a little bit about those different stakeholders that are involved in this process? Yeah, sure. And it is quite unique and I think speaks to kind of the crypto angle of things. So in terms of like the, the base product of what we do is we raise capital in two different pools. So we have a senior pool that you can allocate capital capital to at any time. That's kind of like an investment in the protocol and a belief that good deals will be brought to the protocol. And so that's kind of like, that's a fund investment that gets automatically allocated to each deal as it happens. And then every deal has a junior backer portion, which has first loss, but also gets a, a better return. And that's what you raise on a deal by deal basis. So this morning with Land East, while we closed a $10 million deal, we only had to raise $2 million of backer capital that's specifically interested in that deal. And then our senior pool automatically adds 4x leverage. And so it wow. uses that capital that might be more passive, have, has a different kind of investor appetite to a deal that was underwritten specifically by those backers and are willing to kind of take a first loss piece. So that's kind of how it works in that's the capital supply side of things. And then in terms of borrowers, I mean, we're focused on fintechs and credit funds. I think the credit funds give the opportunity to work with really established players in markets and also achieve scale since they have a lot of deals in their pipeline. And then serving fintechs directly will be an opportunity for, for them to have an even more direct relationship with their capital providers. So anyway, so that's, those are kind of the actors in terms of the provision of capital. But then in terms of, you know, my job as well as the Goldfinch community, there are definitely more stakeholders. So one thing in, which is important in general crypto communities is having a really strong community. And so we have a discord with thousands of members who have gone through like training programs on Goldfinch, how to do credit underwriting. Like they're super excited to be involved. I think you know you, you get all types on these discords. People who are just completely crypto native, looking for like when does the token price go up, and then there are people who are very deeply entrenched in traditional finance. And so that community is really massive, right? Because in order to command attention and you know develop a really robust ecosystem, you need to have people who are on board. And so that's a really important part. And we have people who are, are full full time dedicated to managing our community and engaging with them. And then what's quite interesting in terms of the stakeholders is I'm actually just a separate company from Goldfinch itself. Goldfinch is just a protocol. And 
one day it's going to be completely decentralized. My team is building the protocol right now, both on the credit side and the engineering side. But the purpose of decentralized finance is that, you know, at some point, no one has hands on the wheel, or rather the people who have hands on the wheel are the people who own governance stakes in the protocol. And so while at the moment, I'm kind of helping tool the protocol and like making sure it's an efficient marketplace, there comes a day where me and all of my colleagues step back and we start doing value-added services that are independent from the protocol altogether. And so I'm actually an employee of Warbler Labs, even though I talk a lot about Goldfinch as kind of the, the thing that I work on all the time. It's really interesting. It also means my job changes a lot. Like right now, I'm doing similar underwriting activities, as you're saying, to Lendable. But you know, six months from now, when I can't control or, or have any kind of say over how these deals get done, I will start doing something totally different. And that's okay in crypto. <laughs> like There'll always be something new to do. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. I think that last point around, you know, the structure of the and the governance of Goldfinch, it, you know, starting off a bit centralized because someone obviously has to create everything and then becoming more decentralized as more people get involved, more people own like pieces of that governance in the form of, I think, Goldfinch tokens, you know, then the community starts to dictate exactly what happens with the uh, with the protocol. Like that's that's a really cool, you know, function of Web3 that, you know, Web2 yeah. obviously does not have. Yeah. Let's go. And we've actually, so I just want to say one more yeah, thing on that. Like we've, we're actually just like entering that phase now where that's becoming a lot more active. Like we're, we've had a lot of proposals, like governance proposals go up from our community in the last few weeks to you know tinker with the product, add this or that. And even anytime that we have an idea that we want to change in the protocol, we're now it's now decentralized and we have to propose it to the community, talk to talk to them about it, have kind of an independent governance council that makes these decisions. So yeah, and, and that's the idea. It's you also want to drive demand for the native token of the protocol because that kind of helps build incentives as well as continue to to create demand for the product that's being developed and give also more firepower since the protocol itself holds a lot of those tokens and can reward community members. And so if the tokens are worth more then giving someone two GFI to do an audit on a company is a lot more attractive than, you know, if the GFI price is really low. Yeah. And so maybe just to summarize this for our listeners who may be a little less familiar with the DAO governance structure is that basically this I guess all of the funding that goes through the platform is actually on stablecoin, but the governance token is a separate token that basically allows community members to have a say in the direction of the organization rather than being used as like currency, uh, which which stablecoins obviously can be used as. Is that correct? Yes, that's that's exactly right. And so like it's important to delineate these things because most people think of DeFi and DeFi lending as being kind of crypto native, like being backed by Bitcoin or you're trading and providing volatile cryptocurrencies. But the core of our business like doesn't is is independent of that. And so hopefully that also means we're a bit counter cyclical because people will look for real world yields when some of these like algorithmic yields in you know, the crypto ecosystem away. So sorry, what was the original question? I I may I've lost my train. I think of I, I was there. just summarizing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like yeah. we can go down many rabbit holes. Uh, no, you're right. I wanted to explain GFI a little bit more, though, because I think that probably is a little bit confusing. Like, how does this like crypto token play in? I mean, a good example is these deals we're doing right now, right? So, 
in the Lendies deal we just did, if you're a junior investor, you get 17% yield. So the, the deal was priced at 10% for Lendies. You get uh, a juiced coupon if you're in the junior pool. So you get 17% in USDC. But then that's for these yield. early, yeah, that's your yield. So 17% okay. in dollars, like fixed, that is like your interest coupon. Okay. On top of that, to incentivize people to invest in those deals, we're also offering GFI rewards. And so by airdropping them the GFI governance token for being early supporters of the protocol, they're getting additional yields. And like, it's a lot. So right now, the 17% is the fixed yield. The current value of people who invested this morning are getting an additional 25% APR from the token. And so I think using some of that excitement for native crypto tokens is effectively allowing you to get a 40% yield on a bond or a loan that's actually only paying 10% from the end, end borrower. And so from my perspective, there, there are different types of yield, but to the extent that Goldfinch, the Goldfinch's token can be considered as a core part of that yield, it means that you can decrease the price to borrowers because people might be interested and motivated for two different reasons to get into a deal. And then to the extent that that, I mean, that Goldfinch money that we're giving out is, is from our protocol itself. There's no cost to borrowers. And then hopefully in the longer term gives us the chance to reduce the prices that we're able to show to borrowers because people are getting some of these rewards for participating in governance on chain. Right. And I guess that long-term vision of reducing that price actually reduces their cost of funds and allows them to pass that along to their end users, which is really you know, in, yeah. in terms of financial inclusion, like what else could you want? That's great. Yeah. And then the one bridge between kind of like the USDC side of things and the Goldfinch side of things is that when the Goldfinch protocol accepts a USDC interest payment, we take a 10% fee of that and it goes into the reserve on the protocol. And so unlike some of these crypto coins that are purely speculative, over time, there will be a growing reserve base of USDC in the Goldfinch protocol that kind of gives it some of that core value or baseline value denominated in fiat. That's great. Thank you for explaining this, Aaron. I want to go back a little bit, though, to uh, the fintechs that are using Goldfinch to actually raise funds. So, you know, you mentioned Lendeast, uh, you know, which is just closed this morning. But I've also seen I, I went through the list of uh, borrower pools yesterday and saw AlmaVest on there. I've seen Aspire on there, which are, you know, fintechs in South and Southeast Asia or funds in South and Southeast Asia that are raising money. I guess for those fintechs, like what is the real value proposition? I mean, you mentioned able to raise funds very quickly and that happens in stablecoins, but what are some of the other value propositions of using Goldfinch for those fintechs who may otherwise want to just go to a traditional credit fund or go down the street to DBS and get like a line of credit. Like what's, what's the other value proposition? Yeah, I would say the first one is that going down the street to getting a line of credit is just not an option. Like at DBS, it's just not an option for a lot of these fintechs, which is why this whole industry exists. But I think the, the core things that Goldfinch offers these clients is savings in terms of time and money. So in terms of time, like what we engage with these fintechs, and then one week ahead of these raises, they post a data room and then they're able to fundraise. And so from start to finish, the world knowing about Lendeast wanting to raise money was one week in the Goldfinch ecosystem. Now, 
fintechs, I know from firsthand experience, raising money from a credit fund can take, I mean, I would say on average six months, if not longer, because there's so many things you have to, to be focused on. And then the other thing is just like actual dollar costs. Like if you think about how many different stages money has to go through before it actually reaches fintechs, most of those costs go down to the fintechs. And especially in an industry like private credit, it's private. It's opaque. A lot of the power and the negotiation sits with the capital providers. Whereas if you're a fintech raising US dollar funds for the first time, you don't know what the right fee for an administrative agent is. And eventually you just end up paying a lot of them. And so just to, to map out kind of how that works, like in traditional credit funds, you have your LPs who are the big institutions. You have to spend you know years grooming them and like helping them understand your your model to help them provide capital. Then you have to do all of the fund infrastructure between the LPs and the credit funds. So setting up Luxembourg entities, making sure it's all tax efficient, big cost. The credit funds themselves have to pay for their opex. So you have the people who are underwriting the deal have to get paid. Management has to get paid. Data scientists have to get paid. And so that all comes out in the form of fees that are charged to the borrower. And then those credit funds are also incentivized to charge higher rates because they get spread over, like on top, they get carry on top of kind of their hurdle rate. And then between credit funds and the fintechs, you know, fintechs often have to hire intermediaries or advisors to help them find credit funds. And, you know, there's a lot, there's been a lot of times where I was doing deals with fintechs and they actually were like, okay, we need to hire a whole full-time person to manage this right now. Like this is just a whole new functionality you have to have. So just thinking about all the costs that it, it takes in order to interact with capital in this sphere is, it's, it's a lot of cost. And so simply disintermediating several of those actors and having people be able to put up a deal and have that deal funded by the very investors who are looking at their data room reduces a ton of those costs. And Goldfinch protocol takes no fees from the borrower themselves. And so that's another thing that I think is really borrower friendly. The other thing is that I think the, the borrowing structure for Goldfinch, I mean, there's some, this is kind of nuanced, I guess, but is tends to be more borrower friendly. We do bullet loans as well as operate our facilities as revolving credit facilities. And so if you don't have use for the capital, you can pay it down early because there's always demand for redemption on the blockchain. So a lot of these like nuances, I think, end up making the process very borrower friendly. And then the other thing is that, you know, my job, Warbler, is more to help develop both than just a marketplace. It's not my place to say like, this is a good deal. This is a bad deal. I don't write credit memos. I just make sure that things work. And so if you eventually are able to kind of cut out all of those different like additions of risk management that happen along every step of the supply chain, you end up in a place where borrower or lenders on the protocol are most interested in getting the core things right. You don't spend tons of time, you know, nitpicking over this covenant or that covenant, or making sure an Indonesian court has signed this security document, you get right to what borrow, what lenders think are the key risks and things they want to see in the structure. And so I think you end up with simpler structures that, again, are more borrower friendly. Yeah. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And can you share, you know, some of those borrowers and like what the use cases are? What are they actually using the funds for? Yeah. So, I mean, I would say a lot, well, it, 
I would say there's two different strategies, right? There's the, the credit fund strategy and there's the fintechs themselves. So the credit funds are just deploying that money to fintechs in the same way that I did at Lendable. And so in the Lendy's case, they have a VCC fund in Singapore, which is a variable capital commitment fund, I believe is what it stands for. <laughs> and our money will go into that fund and they'll be able to fund you know, a bunch of their deals across Indonesia, Philippines, India with that money. Now, in terms of what the fintechs themselves do, I would say most of them are using them to originate loans. So it's companies that have a need to develop a large loan book and have funding on the liability side of their balance sheet in order to originate those. Now, you can get creative as well and think about any other case where receivables are created from a fintech's activities. And so, for example, like some fintechs have to keep a bunch of cash in banks in order to facilitate payments. I mean, you must know about this in Grab. And so I think that, you know, we can securitize against those different types of collateral that are created by these fintechs. And then, so, I mean, that is all kind of within what I would say is the world of secured debt now, which is what we do. And we want to basically be on lending capital that's helping these fintechs grow their book. But there's also venture debt. And this is something we might, we might get into in the future, just giving debt the same way you would equity to help fund operational expenses. Maybe you help that with earlier stage startups. And so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of different structures you can, you can explore. And I think we will in the future, but keeping it quite simple for now of having capital that is primarily used as on lending capital so that we can be secured by the assets that are originated with our cash is kind of the, the status quo and like, you know, what most people default to in the space. And so, I mean, just talking about the specific examples, right? Like Aspire does SME loans throughout Southeast Asia. They have a big presence in Vietnam, uh, as well as offering kind of like digital payment solutions, uh, like kind of like a Brex competitor in some ways. And so, yeah, our capital is going towards helping them fund those loans and expand themselves. Yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. And it, at, at a lower cost of capital that, you know, and I guess, it, you know, not just for those companies, the fintechs, but also those funds. So again, you can be more efficient about what you're actually dispersing. And then it, it does lead me to the question of like, well, like, what happens if people default or what if like Aspire default? Not saying that they will, but like what happens, you know, if there's like a shock, you know, another COVID shock uh, in Southeast Asia, we've seen, you know, cases going up the last few weeks and some of these companies start defaulting. Like, is there recourse in the community? I guess it's a smart contract. So it's built into that and the money is all digitized. <laughs> So it's locked up, but like, tell, tell us what happens when, when someone defaults. Yeah. I mean, hopefully it never happens, but of, of course this is part of the risk that's in this industry. So, I mean, we, we do have recourse, right? So usually these, these documents have several forms of security. The main one is recourse to a parent company. So some of these people do lending through SPVs and you want to make sure you have recourse to the corporate strength and the equity of those companies. And then what we usually do is, well, I mean, almost always, fintechs themselves have to provide some of their own equity capital to kind of like top up our loans so that our loans are actually over collateralized by 20%. So 100, 100 bucks from us is used to originate loans. They put it in 20 bucks. We are over collateralized in case some of their loans start defaulting. And so the, the overall idea is that, you know, 
even if the fintech itself had issues and defaulted, we should technically have security over end loans that would be able to make us whole. And so that that makes the secured value proposition a little bit better. And then you can get other security as well, like enforceability on bank accounts and things like that. But it is a good question of how you know the crypto community talks to traditional finance and like it's it's untested, right? So I mean we have mechanisms of how borrowers could be brought together. We have like a pretty sophisticated governance mechanism. And so if there were big decisions, like whether to call a company in default, we could put things like that onto our platform and have the people who contributed capital have a say in that decision. But it is one of the more tricky parts of my job of like looking at a standard loan document and saying, how do I need to change this? Like the payment clause needs to say, payments go to this Ethereum address rather than payments go to this bank account. So being, I think, you know, this is one of the things about debt is you kind of have to plan for the worst. And I, I think we're in a good position if any, any of that ever happens. But yeah, it, it will, it'll be interesting case studies. I mean, the other thing that I think is really interesting is like, not only how would borrowers interact with traditional finance to enforce on loans, I think there's also education we would we have to do with our borrowers on the blockchain. Most of them don't usually have principal at risk when they're getting some of these stablecoin yields. But if you're tied to real economic activities, there's no way to actually prevent that. There's no over collateralization of Bitcoin that you can liquidate to like take out the loan immediately. And so how our community would react if there was a default would also be quite unprecedented and quite interesting. And that's something that we also have to communicate with our with our lenders about because we are quite a different model from the rest of DeFi uh, and are able to offer better yields because of that, but also it comes with additional risk. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. And and maybe this is a good point, Aaron, to kind of talk about some of like the similarities and differences between Web two and Web three, especially when it comes to lending. I think you know, you the risk side and the collection side certainly is one. And maybe we need to do a follow-up episode uh, whenever that happens, because I'm like so curious to see how the <laughs> community is going to manage that. You know, as someone who also works in lending, it's one of the things that, you know, we think about before we disperse any loan. Like how do you, what happens in the case of a default? It kind of feels like Goldfinch is, has, has a plan, but like hasn't been able to test it yet. And so once you get to test it, I'm like, I'm like dying to see um, what that looks like. Yeah. It's an interesting, I would say like, it's so much more important to underwrite good deals than to think about kind of your exit plan. My personal feeling is like a lot of these conventions in structured debt originated in developed markets where like if a company defaults, you can go sell their loan book or securitize it and, you know, have a pretty good exit strategy. Even if I'm over collateralized by 20% on a loan to an Indonesian fintech that's like, you know, serves, you know, different parts of Indonesia that are hard to access, how am I ever going to collect on that loan if the fintech goes bankrupt, right? Like, am I really going to go do boots on the ground and go collect on every $100 to $500 loan? Like, of course not. And so I think a lot of these like security mechanisms we have in place are just to ensure that there's alignment between us and the fintech. But in the case of that there is a default, the ability to pick up the phone and talk to the CEO is so much more important than like relying on, oh, I have the best security document with this Indonesian judicial or like, you know, this uh, collateral agency. So 
yeah, for me, I think I think that's something to think about. But yeah, I mean, if if a default ever happens, then I would say I can come back on three months after because my life will probably be that for three months. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, the things do move at a different speed in Web three. But you know, thinking thinking also then about the risks, like managing the risks, uh, you know, in Web three versus Web two, like you know, how do you how do you think about fraud? Uh, right, like Web two has created this infrastructure around you know anti fraud, KYC, AML. There is a whole set of like industry best practices that people use, as well as a lot of regulation. But that regulation doesn't exist in Web3. And it's like a whole different set of risks that you have to watch out for when it comes to fraud. How does Goldfinch think about that? How does Web3, you know, how do Web3 companies think about, about managing fraud risk? Yeah, I would say the way Goldfinch thinks about it and the way broader Web3 thinks about it are probably quite different. I think in a lot of Web3, it's kind of like, do what you can until regulation catches up and then hopefully you end up in, you know, still a good place and you've innovated somewhat. Goldfinch wants to get ahead of that and is very kind of compliance focused. And so this is actually a really interesting use case for NFTs. And I'm not used to, I'm not talking about JPEGs, but like in order for a lender to, to contribute any money to the Goldfinch protocol, they have to go through a third party KYC provider. And then once they pass those checks, an NFT that's non-transferable is issued to their MetaMask wallet saying, I am this person, I'm KYC'd, and funds can only come from that KYC wallet. And so we're, we're trying to get ahead of all of those things. Now, there's obviously lots of levels of complexity. Like I spent... I was in Singapore, I was supposed to be there for just like three or four days meeting with clients and then stayed an extra three weeks just talking to compliance people and understanding all this stuff. And so I think there's different regulations in different geographies. And I think one of the challenges in particular is that Goldfinch money to date has been retail and like dealing with retail in general is pretty tough. But I think we have a lot of those protections in place now, but there's always room to improve. And like, you know, I have lots of calls with our KYC providers every day. Another interesting thing about that's kind of unique about KYC on the blockchain is there's this new concept of KYT out there, which is know your token, which because the everything is traceable in the blockchain, a lot of firms also want to look back like three wallets from the wallet that is dispersing money to say like, did someone sketchy just transfer this to their friend and now they're they're funding the deal? You know, I think there's challenges there because money can move through exchanges and somehow ends up in your wallet and you know you didn't expect to be receiving money from Russian oligarchs or whatever. But I think it's it's a definitely an important thing to add on top. Another interesting thing, I think, I mean, this Russia-Ukraine was a really interesting case study is as soon as, because we actually have a, a pretty big community from Russia and the Ukraine who are contributing to our to our deals. The good thing for us in terms of being KYC forward in this case was our KYC providers rerun checks overnight every day. And so we knew the next morning that there were nobody from kind of the sh- new sanctions lists that would, you know, be triggered or, or would be compromised from a KYC perspective. Yeah, that's really, wow, there's so many interesting things about this. I also, Aaron, maybe before I go on, I reckon, I'm, I see the time. We're almost at time. Do you have a few extra minutes? I do. Okay. Okay, great. Because this conversation is fascinating. So I guess two questions this is leading me to. When you, when you think about KYC or KYT on uh, the blockchain, 
it feels, you know, for people who like Web3 because of the anonymity, doing KYC or KYT seems like really antithesis to that. And the second point I was going to make is, you know, you just said making sure we're not engaging with people on, you know, on any sanctions list on, you know, via Goldfinch, you know, with the Russia-Ukraine war. But people would also argue that some of the value of the blockchain and being decentralized is like, we're, you know, we're not beholden to anyone's sanctions or anyone's policy or regulation. How is Goldfinch thinking about that? And how, you know, as you as someone who's engaged in Web3 in this community thinking about that? Uh, uh, so I think on your, on your second question first, like it's, I have this like weird question about crypto more generally, which is like, it's both touted as something that you can exactly trace, but also touted as something totally anonymous. It's like these two things I think are in conflict. And so I don't think there's anything wrong about, I mean, I don't think anybody in crypto believes that people aren't doing analytics on their wallets, right? Like you should be able to transfer money without limitations from governments and things like that. But I think KYC is a different level on top of that. And like both for real and regulatory reasons, obviously you don't want to be using people's funds and giving them profit from deploying bad funds. But also like if you touch anything on anybody's sanctions list, you're going to be in really big trouble. And so I think always being on side of regulation is good in that regard, but it is a it, it is a good point. Like we are right now trying to attract more and more liquidity to the Goldfinch protocol, and some of these like foundations and or not foundations, but you know crypto investors that we talk to are like we don't like the KYC side of things. We don't want to touch that. And so, I mean, I think we always have to be on side. That's the most important thing. There's also ways that you can kind of get the best of both worlds. So, for example. On our protocol, you're not allowed to redeem any money unless you have that KYC NFT in your wallet. But you are allowed to trade it between people, right? And so the economic interest of that loan may trade hands between like from the start to the finish of that loan, but the people actually getting money out have to be KYC. And so if you're holding that position at the end of the loan, you have to come on the platform and get that KYC in order to receive your funds back. And so I think that still allows for some of it allows for trading of people who are who are more like, oh, I don't want to have to go through KYC processes, but still ensures that we're not actually get doing money flows to bad actors. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, I, I think there there are so many conflicts. I guess um I don't know, things pulling in different directions in Web3. And I, uh, it's, it's really interesting to see like how they're going to shake out and the types of people that are okay to be, you know, to be KYC'd versus people that aren't. And maybe that there's some self-selection there that, you know, Goldfinch yeah. is actually okay with. Um, I, was also- I actually realized I forgot to answer part of your question, which is like the whole idea of, should we have to deal with the idea of like country limitations and like, are yeah. there good actors in these places when blanket things come into place? And I totally agree with that. Right. Like, and if you look at the new sanctions in Russia, it's very specific people. It's very specific oligarchs and companies that aren't allowed to contribute. And our community in Russia is very robust and have a lot of like interesting value propositions, interesting things that they want to lend to really con- like contribute a lot. And so I think, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater is a bad thing, but 
being able to have rails to transfer money and engage with people without lumping them in with their sovereign is really important. And during this whole Russia-Ukraine thing, one of the biggest funders was crypto, being able to send Bitcoin and Ethereum to the Ukrainian government. I think it's like over 40, 50 million as the last time I checked. So it does, it does give a use case, but as with most things, I think there's always going to be that conflict between kind of like where will regulation end up versus what we're, what we're able to do now. And hopefully we end up in a place that is still more efficient and, you know, KYC and like, you know, on side, but is less complicated. Once the regulation comes in, hopefully the, the good actors still remain. And then the true benefits of kind of blockchain interoperability and things like that uh, will kind of come to the front as the clear value add solutions that, that crypto does. Because I mean, there's also like, because it's so new, there's a lot of people that don't approach it with very much like academic rigor. Like you see a lot of tweets that are like, Bitcoin solves third world countries like being like in being in developing like statuses it's just like yeah these broad statements can like excite people but like you really have to drill drill down and make sure that you know you're actually focused on the benefits and enhancing the benefits of decentralization rather than kind of letting everybody in that could have negative consequences no. a lot of the controls exist in traditional finance for good reason maybe they've become bloated and inefficient over time, but like there is a core part of like logic there that has to remain. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I really agree with that. But I do, you know, going back to, to your last point around people do tout Web3, Bitcoin, anything on the blockchain as being able to solve poverty, <laughs> right? <laughs> and as someone who is motivated in, t- in terms of like financial inclusion and, and giving people fair and equitable access to financial services, what are your views? Like, do you think that Goldfinch and other Web3, particularly lending platforms, can actually f- further the goals of financial inclusion? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, I think making money more transferable is just kind of moving with the tide on what makes fintech so appealing for financial inclusion. Like the fact that people have smartphones and can look at financial options right now is great. But there's also still a lot of pain points in fintech of reaching hard to serve places and having to do cash disbursements, cash collections, all that kind of stuff. I've seen some really interesting use cases in crypto where, you know, crypto funds can be transferred directly be partnered with a payment solution and then the payment solution just does everything in fiat. And so there could be cases where money is moving more seamlessly, but the end user has no idea that they're actually touching crypto in any way. And so I think it's that ability to move money quickly, efficiently, without so many of the like boxes you have to tick in terms of where you, you know, you channel the money through and all these tax implications and things like that. I think it just enables capital to flow more easily. And then the second thing is that a lot of these layers of traditional finance that exclude people go away, right? Like there's a lot of these, if you're, if you're a bank in Indonesia, why would you lend to an unprofitable fintech rather than, you know, a big construction company that's going to give you a, a return no matter what? You know how to underwrite that deal. And so the idea that someone can come onto a website and say, here is what I'm proposing. And if there's other people in the world who are excited about this, like, let's do it. Let's get that capital to go 
right to the people who need it rather than it have to go through all these funnels that, you know, eventually hurt the poor because, you know, from a traditional finance perspective, they're a worse credit. And so I think cutting out all those intermediaries and have people looking at people and being able to like hear their stories and understand, you know, why getting access to capital hasn't happened yet, but could still be a very profitable opportunity is really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to that point, Aaron, it sounds like the future you're envisioning is, is one where like, it's not just investors lending to like SMEs or fintechs via a Goldfinch like platform or Goldfinch itself. But actually you're, you're going back to like the original P2P lending model where you can actually lend to individuals. Maybe it looks like Kiva, maybe, but crypto Kiva, but where you actually can see individuals on the other side that you would want to lend to. They make their case. They, you know, ask for a certain rate or they could, they promise a certain rate and then you lend to them. Um, but it's all done via a web three protocol. Is that like a future you envision? Is that, is that where we're going? Uh, I would say that's a utopian future. That would be amazing if it could happen, but probably can. A couple of reasons is like, not everybody's a good credit, right? It's, it's really hard to underwrite these things. And then the second thing is there's so much local knowledge that has to go into these business models that, you know, just, just saying like, I'm a fintech. I channel money to these people, like under, like underemphasize how much work they have to do. Like a lot of these fintechs are able to achieve better risk profiles through diversification, like having full-time teams that can underwrite these deals and make those, those firms sustainable. And so I think this is like, I think a lot of crypto people come to that conclusion immediately, which is like, why don't we just take everybody out of here and just like people interact with people. And it's like, you're going to have a big blow up if that happens. But there are opportunities to get into that, right? Like we were, we're being approached by people who want to do invoice financing for SMEs directly. It's like, we are a big enough company that we have enough invoices that we can interact directly with the protocol. I still think there's, it's putting too much pressure on the community to really be able to understand these incredibly nuanced credit decisions. And so I think fintechs are still the way to get there, applying both the technology, but also like the local know-how and like smart business model, iterations, equity capital, all these kind of things. This is one part of it that I think is still very integral in the TradFi community. And to be honest, I think the people who will be championing championing the idea of us being able to lend directly to those end clients will eventually be the fintechs, right? Like to the extent that they're able to connect us to their borrowers and borrowers have a easier access to capital, that's in the benefit of fintechs that are focused on financial inclusion. So I think they'll be the ones leading the way. But until then, like, I consider them like the last set of safe hands that I'd be willing to put the capital into while still remaining efficient in disintermediating some of the some of the actors in between. Got it. Got it. That is great, Aaron. I think uh, there's still a lot of work to do, um, but it's super exciting. We're just about out of time. I know I've taken up a lot of your time and asked you a million questions. And quite frankly, I could sit here and talk to you about this all day because I am fascinated by, uh, I mean, lending is my background. So I'm like fascinated about how we can actually lend in Web3. So, so super fascinating. Maybe just kind of the last question, I want to, I want to go back to Goldfinch for a second, ask uh, for the listeners of our podcast, you know, how can they get involved? Uh, especially for those of us who may have trouble keeping up with a very noisy Discord community. I was smirking at Aaron earlier for those who can't see me because um, I'm in the Discord community and definitely can't keep up. 
help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I felt the same way about our Discord community for the first few months at Goldfinch. I've like really started engaging now, which I think is has been good, and it's less unruly than you think, but it's definitely a different. It's 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 pretty loud. There's a lot of things you have to to listen to. So I think a, a good way to be involved is like you know we're accepting contributions to our deals at any size. Like for the first, like this, this Lendy's deal is a little bit of an exception, but for the first few deals, the median ticket we were seeing is, you know, five grand. And so you can put as much or as little as you want. in. obviously there's probably economies of scale where like gas fees are so expensive that you probably don't want to contribute $1. But if you want to get involved and, and put capital to work, it's available to everybody. We are retail focused, but then there's so many other cool ways. Like we are trying to develop out the ability for our community to interact in, in lots of different ways with the protocol. One of the interesting ones is like, if there are credit underwriters like me and you who have background in this and you just want to go freelance, like go find a company and be like a search fund, bring it onto the platform. Don't bring any capital with you, but you've written a really nice memo about it. You know the business really well. Like there's nothing to say that a credit fund has to be the one to underwrite it or just individuals have to underwrite it. And so. There's that. And then if there's people who are more interested in kind of like getting into the nitty gritty of the community, we also are rolling out these roles of like auditors. And so one of the purposes of the auditor role will be to prevent the fraud you're talking about previously, right? Of having someone set up a shell SPV, throw up a deal and just hope that crypto capital flows in for whatever reason. And so there's there's a lot of cool roles within the community. And then I'm also just really eager to like include more traditional finance people. So we we just started a Discord channel that's called our TradFi Lounge and we we chat about things. I think Goldfinch is very crypto focused right now and having more people in the traditional finance markets will be very important. In terms of the deals itself, you know, we just tweeted out our uh, the closing of the Lendy's deal. And in there, there's a link to be on our MailChimp. So you get you know a, an announcement the day before any deal goes live. Since these deals are closing within two hours, if you, if you want to be a contributor, you kind of have to be at your computer. But yeah, lots of different ways to get involved. And I think especially like people in the traditional finance field shouldn't feel intimidated. There's so much we can learn from you guys and, and add to this whether you're in Web2 or at a bank or, or whatever, like it's got to be collaborative. And I think our integrations with traditional finance, there's just so many different ways that people with different skill sets can add to our community. It's amazing. Thanks, Aaron. All, all about collaboration. I really like that and, and trying to bring everybody into the fold. Aaron, thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. This has been a super fascinating discussion. But that's it for today. Thank you to the audience for joining us uh, on this episode of The Green Room. And we hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello, my name is Todd Schweitzer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Brancas. Brancas is a Southeast Asia-based open finance technology company. And we do several things. We work with banks and other financial institutions with a set of software solutions to help them launch open APIs and API products um, in a matter of weeks. And we also provide... Uh, simplified APIs that enable any fintech or e-commerce or online business to instantly connect to financial services across Southeast Asia through a simple API. We operate in Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, and soon Bangladesh. 
and I'm very excited to participate in the Green Room and forward to supporting the Green Room podcast and also the broader Apex Oxygen initiatives. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Green Room with Amrita Veer. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest updates. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we would also really appreciate you leaving us five stars and a review. And if you know anyone who would be a great guest or have any feedback, reach out to us at greenroomfintech at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Catch you later.